This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. The biggest question is what are you documenting it for? And because that would also completely determine or should at least completely determine the methodology that you're using. Medieval crimes are being committed. I come with clean hands. Victims of horrific crimes want justice. We don't have anything better than this. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. All rise. We're focusing today on a curious aspect of our world of international criminal justice, and that is how crimes are documented and how that evidence is shared and made useful. This has all come into sharp focus because of Ukraine and the sheer number of organizations involved in documenting war crimes on the ground. But it also pulls in the documentation around the Rohingya atrocities in Myanmar, and I'm sure we'll also refer back to other places like Syria and go further back to understand exactly how documentation used to work. And to help us along, we have two very significant people, Anya Neissert from the Clooney Foundation for Justice. Hi, Anya. Hello. Anya has a long pedigree as an investigator and a collector of evidence, and maybe you've seen the documentary The E-Team on Netflix, and you'll have seen her there working previously for Human Rights Watch, dressing up in full abaya to protect her identity, running across the border into Syria and out of Syria, and trying to collect direct testimony and evidence of Syria regime bombings of civilians. And we have Eva Buzo. Hi, Eva. Hi, thank you for having me. Eva is representing victims at the International Criminal Court in the Bangladesh-Myanmar case, many thousands of people. She is the head of Victims Advocates International and has worked with many victims of international crimes and human rights violations. And to give a little bit of context as to why we thought this would be a good subject, I just wanted to pick out some of what Karim Khan, the prosecutor of the ICC, said in an address in July to the Ukraine Accountability Conference that was here in The Hague. It's the one that the Dutch put together where they were really discussing coordination, cooperation. It was the ICC, you're adjust, all kinds of countries, all kinds of people trying to pledge stuff together. Yeah, I thought they were already doing that before the conference. Yeah, they were, they were. But come on, give the Dutch their moment. They decided that they needed to pull everybody in and just put a Dutch kind of shine on things. So in Khan's speech, he talked about how the ICC got involved with Ukraine back in February after so many countries referred the Russian invasion to the court. He said that they were going to be um, putting some new guidebooks uh, co-written with Eurojust together for civil society. And we'll come back to that later in the podcast. And that national authorities would need to do various things to try to make sure that we, quote, unquote, don't over-document and try and make sure that the evidence that is collected actually has a purpose. And he went on to say, We need to learn the lessons of the past. When I made this announcement, uh, when I made the declaration on the 25th of February, I was in Cox's Bazaar. And we saw there the cost of over-documentation. We've seen in Iraq and Syria the need of the Murad Code. We need to realize this is not about fiefdoms. It's not about different entities uh, struggling and competing and you know, rubbing against each other. It really is about a need to make sure the law can fulfill its purpose. So, Ava, should we just pass that a bit? What exactly was Khan referring to with this kind of Cox's Bazaar stuff? Yeah, thank you for the question, Janet. Um, just a quick correction before I start on the answer. We're only representing uh, 70 people at the ICC, not um, a large group of, of thousands. I thought that was an important distinction to make because the situation hasn't got to the LRV stage just yet. 
But to go to the question, you know, the, the issue of over-documentation in Cox's Bazaar really took on a life of its own. And uh, when uh, the prosecutor is saying we know all know the cost of over-documentation in Cox's Bazaar, I'm not entirely sure what he's referring to because I don't think we've seen the cost of over-documentation in Cox's Bazaar yet. I think you know, we're really going to see the impact of it when it comes to these cases being brought to trial and being put under the scrutiny of defence lawyers who are going to challenge the historical narrative as it currently stands. Well, just let me interrupt you just for a moment. I mean, for some people, I'm sure most people listening to the podcast, Cox's Bazaar is, you know, something they know. But let's just be clear, this is one of the main places that Rohingya refugees kind of resettled over the border in Bangladesh. And it's where a lot of people then went to to document. Is that Right? Yes, absolutely. So what you had was essentially a conflict-affected displaced population, a very easy to access location. And it was a safe location. It was not didn't take long to get to. So once people started coming across the border from Myanmar into Bangladesh, you had this constant stream of people who were documenting or conducting research for a master's thesis or journalists uh, doing pieces on the violence faced by the Rohingya. And uh, they were pretty much coming every week. At that point, I was the protection lead for BRAC, which is the largest implementing partner for UNHCR in the Cox's Bazaar context. And I was overseeing 11 protection facilities. So in that role, I frequently had these people doing their research or documentation coming to me saying, can you connect me to victims? Can you connect to victims? And uh, I think the most important oversight in this situation is people coming and they were coming for short-term trips and there was no coordination or communication amongst these people. And there's literally one road to the camp in Cox's Bazaar. And so everyone just took the same place, went to the same location and uh, essentially did the same thing. And so you ended up with what I argue is an over-concentration and over-saturation of victim statements because it was just such a repetitious event that these documenters would come and just do exactly the same thing. I see you nodding, Anya. Do you have that experience as well in Iraq and Syria? Because Khan mentioned there also over-documentation. I would say there it was a bit less just because the access was not as easy, especially Syria. There was a moment when there were lots of journalists, but only in certain parts of the country, And even that was not very easy. And then from a certain point, it was actually quite difficult to get evidence because access was almost impossible. You know, you mentioned, you know, us uh, climbing over the fence to get to Syria. Then there was a moment when the border was slightly more open. So it was a little bit easier, but it was never uh, it was never straightforward. I think I'm nodding uh, in slight despair because that's exactly what we're seeing now in Ukraine. And uh, I don't want to, you know, preempt your questions, but I think it's uh, it's a critically important discussion. I'm very torn about that because I still remember working in places where access to information was a major challenge. You know, when I worked in Chechnya, 
you know, there were no cell phones. Can you imagine? I'm that old. There were no cell phones. You know, there were no, definitely most people didn't have any kind of cameras. Getting, you know, a tiny piece of footage was already, you know, we considered it being very lucky. It was impossible to connect with people afterwards. So it was completely, completely, and getting in there was very complicated and dangerous. So in some ways, for documentation, Ukraine, you know, is a perfect platform where access is very easy, where there are lots of, you know, citizen journalists, documenters, whatever the uh, modern term is for that. But it also creates a completely different set of challenges, which the further we go, the more I get concerned about. Well, let me ask you then, when you have this word documentation, Anya, and then maybe Ava, what's documentation actually for? That's the best question ever. And that's, I think, what I keep asking whoever we get in touch with, because I'm definitely not in a position to stop people from documenting, right? And, you know, definitely have no authority to do so. And I know that Khan, for example, tried to encourage people to not over-document, but I think it's not going to go very far. People are very keen. But the biggest question is, what are you documenting it for? And because that would also completely determine or should at least completely determine the methodology that you're using. There are journalists who are documenting, documenting mainly for exposure. It has its own value. It's critically important. But when uh, journalists start documenting war crimes, you know, and I put it in quotation marks because everybody now puts a photo out there of a bomb outbuilding and says it's a war crime. It's so confusing. It's so misleading. And, and that's because journalists are not trained to document war crimes. Journalists are trained for very different types of documentation, critically important, but by all means, but a very different one. Or you have groups that are engaged in more, I would say, general human rights documentation. The ones that I used to work for, Human Rights Watch, for example, Amnesty International, it's very different type of documentation. It's for exposure and advocacy. The goal is to you know, collect testimonies, bring victims' voices up front. Of course, you know, to a certain extent, establish responsibility, determine from the legal perspective what types of violations have been committed. But ultimately, you put it in the report, it goes out, you engage in advocacy. And then there is a type of documentations that we do or similar groups do, which is ultimately for criminal prosecutions. And that's a completely different type of documentation for which all of the other types of documentation could be frankly unhelpful. Ava, would you like to join in there? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree entirely with what Anya has said. What I would add to it is that documentation makes up one component of an overall investigation where at the end of that investigation, a prosecutor is going to want to draw some legal conclusions. And there is a very serious problem if the investigation only relies on victim statements or documentation from victims. An investigation will take all sorts of quantitative and qualitative sources into account and they will draw legal conclusions based on all of that information. So it's really important and what we've seen in the Rohingya context when you have this oversaturation of victim statements, you end up with a very specific narrative that doesn't necessarily go into the wider context of and what an investigation conducted by the Office of the Prosecutor is going to look at is going to be very different and much broader than simply those victim statements. 
And a critical difference uh, when a prosecutor conducts an investigation is that prosecutors have obligation. And you know, in the case of the ICC, it's a statutory obligation to investigate incriminating and exonerating circumstances equally, which can produce vastly different legal conclusions than victim statements alone. And just from your experience in, in Cox Bazaar and Myanmar, how did that narrow focus on let's say, a certain group of survivors or the same people who were interviewed or, or documented all the time, how did that affect them? Uh, and, you know, how did that affect the, the survivor's experience? One point I would just kind of add before talking about the survivor's experience is the focus on survivor statements, the critical omission that that creates is when you're looking at an investigation, you're trying to look at patterns and you're looking at widespread activities and operations that are happening. Victim statements will focus on places where things happen. They will focus on massacres. They will focus on significant events, but they won't uh, take in the wider picture where things didn't happen. And if you're only looking at evidence of massacres and you're looking at people who are saying there was a massacre, I saw all these people killed, and you only look at that evidence, then uh, perhaps you would draw the conclusion, obviously, that's genocide. Obviously, that's a systematic attack against civilians. But if you widen that out to go, okay, that affected maybe three or 4,000 people, 700,000 people were displayed. There were six villages where massacres took place, but there were over 100 villages where people were displaced from. Then that can change the legal conclusions that you're going to be making in this situation. Do you, to go to the question of how it impacts survivors, people like to talk about the expectations of victims and, um, you know, let's manage victims' expectations. It's something that we hear over and over again. Well, you want to get people good legal outcomes. You want to make sure that they get the justice that they deserve. But that's only going to come when uh, investigators and prosecutors act with investigative rigor and they you know, are looking at the information that defence lawyers are going to come in and they're going to challenge the credibility and they're going to challenge the narrative that the prosecutor is bringing. So you really need to be taking that position from the very beginning of someone is going to come and challenge the credibility of what we're asserting in this situation. We need to make sure it is watertight from day one, otherwise it's going to fall down when it gets to trial. Yeah, and one of the things that gets mentioned a lot is if you have repeated statements from the same victims, they're never going to line up exactly because that's just the way it works. But that is something that is classically used by defense attorneys to pick it apart, that if you said the door was green and now you say the door is blue, how can we trust any any anything else of your testimony, which is what we see in court all the time. You would not believe how many times I repeated exactly that sentence over the last eight months. It's unbelievable, especially when they're recorded on video, which, you know, many journalists now do and other organizations. And of course, you know, it's very difficult to say, just don't, because this person could be a critically important witness in a prosecution. And if this statement, this video statement of yours is pulled out by the defense, it would make my life very, very difficult. Because, you know, if I'm putting this witness on a stand, this is exactly what is used to discredit witnesses' credibility. And, you know, it has been done and it will be done if this goes any further. So, no, just concurring with you. One thing, just while we're still talking about survivors' experience, while Khan was speaking, he mentioned the Murad Code. The full name of that is the Global Code of Conduct for Gathering and Using Information about Systematic and Conflict-Related Sexual Violence. 
It's called Murad after Nadia Murad, the Nobel Prize winner, Yazidi woman who was held by an ISIS commander, wrote about her uh, horrendous experiences in a book, The Last Girl. And it's her organization that's together with many others that's uh, helped to develop the Murad Code. And it's meant to be something that civil society, other investigators use to think about the harm that they can cause specifically to conflict-related sexual violence survivors um, by asking the same questions, detailed, intrusive questions, and what they cause. And maybe you want to follow this up with a question that you have, Steph. Well, I, I wanted to know to what extent do international courts and tribunals actually need forensic evidence, blood, saliva, semen, to prove that something is sexual assault or rape, or do they need more of the testimony? Because what I see a lot in court is that they don't, you don't have any of the forensic evidence for conflict-related sexual violence, because usually, you know, in the middle of a conflict, you don't generally take rape kits. It can take many months before people go and meet somebody who could, people who could say that this has happened or how get medical help or even can talk about it. So, so it is all about testimony, isn't it? Yeah, it seems that to me that at least for conflict-related sexual violence, it is witness testimony that it's based on generally. Ava? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's, and you rightly point out, people are rarely going to be on the scene in time to, you know, to do a rape kit or to collect that physical evidence. So it's certainly heavily reliant on, uh, on witness testimony and victim testimony. So, Anya, your experience on the ground, you know, you've been in Ukraine and you've been in many other places. Um, it, when you are collecting evidence yourself? I mean, what is it that you you are looking for? Are you collecting testimony or are you looking at something else? Thank you. And again, you know, I would probably separate my experience prior to my current role because it was very different. It was mainly testimonial evidence because, you know, as I said before, you know, for human rights organizations that are involved in more general human rights documentation and advocacy, this is one of the most important things uh, you have. You know, we often also try to speak to the perpetrators, for example, or, you know, increasingly, especially, uh, you know, over the last maybe five, seven, ten years, using also other means of collecting information, open source intelligence, satellite imagery analysis, and, you know, other, other means. But of course, for now, in the work we're doing now, I would say we actually don't take testimonies. And that's, you know, the key. Of course, I need to speak to the people and understand both, you know, whether they consent to giving information, whether they're willing to speak afterwards uh, to the prosecutors. We're mainly focused on universal jurisdiction cases. We work less with international tribunals on Ukraine specifically. And so there it's uh, the statements are very basic, always in third person for exactly the reason that I just quoted. So the only thing we're doing is uh, we are handing over to relevant prosecutors the names of survivors, family members, witnesses, whom they should be able uh, to take an official statement from with some of the basic details. Secondly, we do, uh, you know, during our field investigations, anything related to, for example, battle damage assessment. Again, in Ukraine, it's easier because there is a lot of this information that is being collected by the Ukrainian prosecutors. But the extent to which it will be available to prosecutors in Germany or the Netherlands or elsewhere is a big question mark. We are trying to work very closely with the Ukrainian prosecutors, Ukrainian police. Again, it's a very different scene, right? Speaking of rape kits, I think they were actually taken in a few cases that we're aware of because, you know, Ukrainian police is actively investigating how and, you know, I'm put it like putting the caveats aside, I can tell you that there are quite a few victims that want to pursue their cases elsewhere, not necessarily in Ukraine. But, you know, for a variety of reasons, 
if you want me to elaborate in one line, it's because, first of all, Ukrainian prosecutor's office now has 34,000 cases open and the chances of an individual survivor to getting justice in the midst of all of that are, are quite slim. Second of all, for example, um, survivors of sexual violence that we spoke with were not entirely happy with how they were handled by the investigators, partially because Ukrainian investigators, some of them are now very well trained and I give them full credit, but this is not something they're used to. They're not used to investigating war crimes, especially something as sensitive as conflict-related sexual violence. So we do, we do, you know, everything that is forensic analysis, and there we use military experts to help us identify the kinds of weapons that were used, the kind of damage that was, was caused. We work with, for example, forensic examiners to, uh, in cases of torture and executions, and we combine all of that, of course, because we're working with criminal cases, we're trying to build criminal cases, we combine it with linkage evidence, which is almost exclusively, I mean, of course, there are some leads that you get on the ground, but a lot of that is OSINT. So a significant chunk of our work is basically tracing all of these leaked materials, either, you know, from Ukrainian intelligence, from Russian intelligence, or just the materials left behind by Russians that we all have to put together and then just run these endless lists of Russian soldiers and commanders and match them to what we're seeing on the ground. Absolutely. Just to, for the people who are not up to all the acronyms, OSINT is open source information. So you're looking at things on the internet and satellite images and all those things. Before you ask the next question, I think let's just throw it back to Ava in case there's something you want to add in from the Myanmar perspective on this specific topic, Ava. Yeah, thank you, Janet. Um, one thing that I've really thought about a lot in relation to the Rohingya context and how sexual violence was dealt with is I really do feel that there's a need for international accountability to kind of wind back this laser beam focus on sexual violence and instead try and focus a lot more on the holistic experience of women in conflict. And that the sort of specific focus, it comes from a good place because, you know, it's only been in the last 30 years that we've recognised that sexual violence is a thing in conflict. But I think now we need to move to a place where uh, we integrate understanding of sexual violence into documentation and investigation practices rather than kind of having it as this separate component because I think it's this unintegrated approach that's really generating these poor practices and it's you know reducing women and victims to an experience that external actors might have decided is important but it might not be the sort of critical part of the experience for the woman. She might have lost family members, she might have lost children or her parents or property, or she might have other injuries. But, you know, in the case of Cops is Bizarre, this is the whole sort of focus on over-documentation came from this these poor practices where people were, you know, effectively lining victims, you know, rape victims up and saying, you know, come and interview these rape victims. And, uh, you know... The camp in Cox's Bazaar is twice the size of The Hague, right? There's over a million people living there. And can you imagine trying to show up to a new city where you don't know anyone, you've never been there before, and you, you want to find 50 rape victims? But this is exactly what happens when, uh, you know, people have, um, you know, told a donor or an institution, I'm going to go document sexual violence in, in Cox's Bazaar. I'm going to, you know, have funding for a 10-day trip. I'm going to arrive. I'm going to go to the camp and I'm going to do 50 interviews. And, uh, you know... This, this is a kind of a methodology that people outline in the methodology sections of their reports, but it really generates this poor practice of 
I've got to find rape victims. And, uh, you know, when the community kind of starts seeing that as the way in which justice is engaging with the community, then they're going, oh God, like we want justice, we want accountability. Okay, let's, let's, let's get the rape victims and let's make them available for people. Like it's an extremely vulnerable situation that people are, are put into. And it also just makes for poor investigation techniques. If you've already decided what you're looking for when you show up, you're not conducting an investigation. You know, if you're like, I need to find victims of sexual violence, you're not going to be absorbing information and analyzing information in the way that you should be as an investigator, you know, abiding by proper standards. So I really do think that we need to kind of pull back from this strong focus on sexual violence and make sure documenters are trained across the board to receive sexual violence disclosures because you won't always know going into an interview if someone is going to make that type of disclosure. So it really just needs to become a much more integrated practice rather than a, a separate component of an investigation. If you go back, uh, what we talked about before, that Khan uh, and the ICC and Euro just have put out these guidelines for NGOs gathering evidence in conflict situations, that were released this week, they're kind of saying what you are saying as well, a very condensed, uh, my journalistic uh, summary of it is, stop taking detailed accounts, leave that to the prosecutors and just ID potential witnesses and pass on their info to legal bodies. As Anya was saying that that is exactly what she's doing. So you're, the code is very much check for you. But I'm thinking, will NGOs do that because they use all this information for so many different ways. I mean, not to be cynical, but it's also you have to be seen, right? If you're Human Rights Watch or you're an Ukrainian human rights organization, you know, and everybody now butchers synonymous with, with massacres and horrible crimes. So you kind of have to be seen to go there. So there's this war between what you document and also what you know will get media attention or what you can can drive your advocacy so we can have these guidelines but do you think ngos or human rights organizations will keep to that well i think the short answer is no uh they won't i hope it will give at least some sense to organizations that do take their work seriously and uh, do have appropriate ethical and legal standards of what is expected and you know it's just yet another reminder of how this should be done but i also agree with you as i said in the very beginning purposes are different so as long as you understand the purpose of what you're doing and there's a good reason why for example human rights watch or amnesty or some other organizations do not think of criminal prosecutions and as a result you know adjust their methodology accordingly it's because you know many of the cases they're working on un- will not result in criminal prosecutions. It's absolutely normal. It's actually a very small percentage of cases that these organizations are looking at that might lead to that. And then, you know, whether for these type of cases that you know they would take this advice to heart, I honestly don't know. But there are other organizations that are purely kind of journalistic collectives, and for them, these guidelines mean that they cannot do their jobs. So I do think that we must continue to try to find some common ground there, but it's difficult. It's really, really difficult because, you know, ICC, us, whoever else cannot tell 
human rights groups what to do or what not to do. You know, there was all this debate about, you know, qualifications or like roster organizations that are allowed to do documentation that are not allowed to do documentation. I don't think it's realistic. I think it largely comes down to everybody at each organization actually adhering to some of the basic moral and legal standards and constantly asking themselves question of why. Why are you doing this? What's your ultimate goal? Why are you talking to these people inevitably re-traumatizing them? And there needs to be a very good reason for that because otherwise it immediately becomes unethical. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I read this and as a journalist, I think it's not going to happen the way they want because if I was a journalist in the field, I would need to ask what I can't write a story without detail. Without those details, and and what I do find helpful in this is that they outline the risks of it and and the worries, so that at least you can be informed and that you can ask yourself, do I really need to interview this person? Is it really useful? And also tell my editors, do we really want to do this? And to tell people for informed consent, so uh, to explain to them that if they talk to us, then that might lead to problems later in a, in a legal procedure because of the repeated testimony. And so I, in that sense, feel good that I have a better informed consent, but it's really something that I don't see these guidelines making such a big difference. Eva, I'm wondering when you're looking now at Ukraine from your perspective of Myanmar and uh, explaining so clearly many of the issues that existed there, do you think that we have learnt and that we have you know that that we are now at least more conscious of the issues than 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 we were during the Myanmar. We meaning kind of the broad human rightsy international justicey type people. Um, look, judging from what Anya's saying and what I've heard, it, it sounds like no, um, these lessons haven't been learnt. And uh, you know, I do think that there's a human side to this. When people are observing mass atrocities happen, that people want to help and they want to be able to do something, you know. So I think it comes from a good place. And there's a often a feeling of helplessness that people have. And sometimes they just, I think it's, I can't do anything to stop the suffering, but I can I can take down the story. I can listen to the story. I can document it. And maybe that will be used for justice. I think you often get that as kind of this inner motivation for people, which is really hard to 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 criticise, essentially. It's really hard to say it's actually not helping um, because it's coming from a place of compassion. I think just to kind of add on to what Anya was saying, I, I do think there is a role for donors to play in this situation in terms of controlling uh, who they give funds to for documentation work. And, uh, you know, if I was a donor and someone came to me and said, we need, you know, $200,000 to document, you know, war crimes in Ukraine, the first thing I would ask for is a literature review. I would say, can you show me the Amnesty report? Can you show me the Human Rights Watch report? Can you show me all the reports that are out there? And then can you explain to me why what, what you're doing is different? And if they can identify a reason that what they're doing is different, then, you know, there's good reason to move forward on it. But I think donors don't actually have that rigour when it comes to, you know, providing funding. They kind of sort of throw money out there and say start documenting they don't put any obligations on people to coordinate you know if you're operating in a humanitarian crisis running protection facilities most donors won't give you funding unless you're part of the coordination structure and you have to attend meetings and you have to be an active participant why don't we have a similar situation when it comes to 
documenting and investigating in these situations. Donors saying, yes, you can have funding, but you must coordinate, you must show what other people's work are, you must demonstrate how you're not going to duplicate, rather than just letting it kind of run free in the way it did in Cox's Bazaar. And Anya, you are working on Ukraine. We've seen, as, as Eva also recalled, there's lots of money available to, to do things with war crimes in Ukraine. Do you think that helps or hinders? I mean, it gets a lot more people out there. It gets a lot of attention. But I think it goes both ways. But I was just going to say to uh, the credit of some donors, at least on Ukraine, they're doing exactly what Eva just described. For example, OSF, I'm not, you know, scared to name them because from the from day one, even before any money was allocated, they tried to organize or they continue to organize coordinating calls amongst all of the groups. And, you know, it scares me because there are 50 people on these calls and <laughs> it makes me more scared. But nonetheless, you know, I think it's a good effort. And so far from what I understand, all of the money that they have been given out were going to either coalitions or organizations that can explain how they were contributes to others. And generally, I think on Ukraine, the positive sign for me is that people are trying to work together. You know, we obviously work in a coalition. It's a smaller coalition. It's not 50 organizations. I'm not trying to coordinate with everybody. It's impossible. But we have a very solid local partner, Ukrainian partner, and several international partners. And then it also differs depending on the cases, but others as well. Ukrainian NGOs formed several coalitions. People are really trying. And I think so there is, in that sense, I see much bigger level of understanding of how important it is to make sure that efforts are not duplicated. There is still duplication. There is still lack of coordination, but it's not completely not there. I think when it comes, when it becomes really difficult, and again, you know, that's probably a message to donors as well, is when it comes to evidence management systems and databases. I'm aware of already, I don't know, more than half a dozen different databases that claim to have kind of more or less the full picture or semi-full picture of what's happening in Ukraine. They're all done on different platforms with different standards of evidence gathering. And from what I understand so far, despite all of the existing efforts, it hasn't been possible to consolidate them. And for me, that is where like basically in the end, 90% of the information contained in these databases will unfortunately never be used. And so that's, you know, I don't have a silver bullet. I don't know how to uh, how to make it work, but partially I think the donors, I agree with Eva, are the ones because there's a, there are donors behind those who could actually drive this agenda, but also probably the prosecutorial authorities and not just ICC, because very few cases will end up in ICC, but others. I actually have some small hope that as universal jurisdiction and extraterritorial jurisdiction proceedings become more of a common theme those who provide information to these proceedings will have a much better sense of the standards and of what works and what doesn't work, what's useful and what's not, which will in turn drive you know, methodology, coordination and some of the other things that we talked about. We have so many more questions we want to ask you, but oh God, another two podcasts worth at least. So we're going to switch instead to the asymmetrical haircuts uh, questions that we always ask at the end before you have to disappear off. So the first one always is, is there something that we should have asked you that we didn't? Please don't answer that because it will end up in another podcast, but no. Okay. Is there something that you desperately think we should have spoken about that we, that we forgot to ask you this time around? Go for it, Ava. I can see you want to. There's one thing that I want to acknowledge in this conversation. My former client, Mohi Buller, who is the chairman of the Arakan Rohingya Society for Peace and Human Rights, ARSPA, 
next week is the one-year anniversary of his assassination in the camps in Cox's Bazaar, and he was murdered for, you know, being a um, peace and justice advocate in a very violent context, uh, which is Cox's Bazaar. And the work that he and his organisation did, collecting names of victims, where they were, and just a one-word description of, of what happened to them, that has turned into the most important body of information about the, the crimes against the Rohingya that has now been gone on to be shared with the ICC and the IIIM, and, you know, it's being used in accountability mechanisms wherever they are popping up for the Rohingya context. And so, you know, this is a victim group. This is a sort of a camp-based organisation who went door to door of all the shelters, getting the list of names of people. And uh, it's just absolutely astounding what they did. And so just, yeah, the week before the anniversary of his murder, I really want to acknowledge the important work that Mohibullah has contributed to accountability. And, you know, it's tragic that he's not going to be around to see that justice, but, you know, we're certainly going to always um, make sure his name is attached to... Um, his work and the contribution that his organisation has made. Thanks very much for that. We'll definitely put a link to that in uh, in the show notes. Anya, is there anything, any uh, thread that you want to pull out? I will respond very briefly, although it probably is a topic for another podcast. I think it would be, because we talked about documentation and methodology and different purposes, I think it would be perhaps interesting at some point to unpack all these different new mechanisms and kind of the end goals of these documentation and practical terms right we threw around things like international criminal court and you know investigative commissions and universal jurisdiction and national prosecutions and i wonder whether potentially for your listeners it would be interesting to actually understand how these i mean i'm sure you've spoken about it before but specifically in relation to uh, myanmar and ukraine for example why are we talking about these different things and what does documentation mean in that context and why are NGOs doing documentation when there are prosecutors out there and how it all coincides. If I can just add one thing on that because um, yeah you're right there there are sort of like a number of mechanisms in relation to Myanmar and it's really interesting to look at how they're all working um, together and I think there's fantastic coordination between the IIIM and the ICC. When I'm talking about there being an incomplete picture in the Rohingya context, one of the challenging aspects of these mechanisms is that they won't make their findings of their investigations public um, unless these cases go to trial or unless there's a case. And so there's going to be a historical narrative that the victim community might never get access to. And I think that's an important part of if there's going to be a well-funded investigative operation, how can we make that more victim-friendly, more victim-centred and contributing to the victim community's understanding of the crimes that they experienced. And then our last question that we always ask is, what have you been watching, reading, listening to recently that you'd like to share with our audience? Anya. Yes, I've been rereading East West Street, just because I think it gives me some kind of historical context. It's like, I don't know if you remember this movie, Watches of the Sky. It's an excellent documentary. But for me, it's always the reminder when you get too desperate. And this book is kind of in the same context for me, that it's been, you know, decades and decades that people have been working on that so we are we're coming off their shoulders just to say east west street is uh philippe sands kind of not his first book but but the one that really made him most famous about both the development of the idea of genocide the development of the idea of crimes against humanity and very much about the identity of Lviv and also about his family and we had him on the podcast recently so you know we can re-promote that again via your choice anya thank you 
Absolutely. And uh, I've been watching yet another medical drama series. My husband uh, who also works in human rights investigations, but I think we both have an unfulfilled dream of being actually field doctors because the impact is so much more tangible in this job. So we're kind of living this alternative reality through watching sometimes pretty stupid, but nonetheless exciting medical dramas. Which one? Which one? Yeah. This one I think is, I mean, <laughs> I think it's called Chicago Medical. I feel very much like it's a ER remake a little bit, but kind of with modern equipment and some of the other themes around public health in 21st century introduced in there. But generally it's the same thing and, you know, cute doctors and, you know, all of this stuff. That, that's what I was going to say. As long as they've got cute doctors in, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> and Eva, what are you watching? Is it cute doctors or is it a very uh, respectable legal drama literature documentary? Uh, no, it's nowhere near impressive, uh, as impressive as um, what Anya's reading. I'm a, a massive Game of Thrones nerd, and I'm so excited that House of the Dragon has started. So I'm currently reading Fire and Blood, and I'm rewatching the old Game of Thrones series. So my, my life is a bit Game of Thrones themed at the moment. And I'm just like, anyone wants to discuss Game of Thrones with me, just DM me, because I'm just like so happy to talk about um, House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones. Oh, I'm dying to watch House of the Dragon. I just, I don't have that uh, that login. So I've got to come around to Janet. I'm also dying to watch, just waiting for the rest of the moment to like... <laughs> You're all welcome to my place. You could, we could, yeah, popcorn away on the sofa. We, we've got uh, the login the... Uh, and uh, off we go. We'll have a Zoom uh, Game of Thrones party for the yeah. next show. <laughs> okay, thank you both so, so much for making time to talk about this really important area. And uh, we'll try and follow up with both of you. Awesome. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe give us a rating and spread the word.